news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. We are going to sashay our way into today's episode and Cece is going to read our first query letter. Hi Carly and Cecilia. I know that adult fantasy isn't on either of your manuscript wish lists, but I would love to hear your thoughts due to your amazing comments about other queries pages on the podcast. Recently, both editors I pitched for RevPit asked for more materials from my query letter and sample pages. One even told me they were deciding between mine and another book as a winner. Redacted is a 119,000-word adult fantasy with series potential. It will appeal to fans of We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Faisal, Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor, and Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson for their character-driven stories, political intrigue, and expansive world-building. As a queer Black woman, I am intentional with my characters being POC, LGBTQIA+, disabled, and having varying body types in a world where that does not dictate their story. Shio only cares about one thing, finding why the ruling empire, Warrenvald, targeted her and her father when she was a child, killing him while she escaped. 
kept isolated her entire childhood and taught to shove her unheard of and dangerous magic down, she now lives on the outskirts of life to stay off the Empire's radar. She knows they still search for her, but she won't rest until she gets her answers. After years of searching, she finds the final clue, a hidden lab where her father created weapons for Warrenvault. Now she will venture into the very kingdom that wants her dead to find it. Though her plan was always to do this alone, she is joined by a charming thief with a troubling past and a friendly magic wielder struggling with the gripping substance addiction. Together, they help Shio get closer to the lab, though they both have ulterior motives for doing so. While they make their way behind enemy lines, whispers of a magic rebellion against Warren Vald follow. Magic wielders have been hunted by Warren Vald for the last 100 years, affecting the land's life source. Now, tension surrounding the last of the natural resources that Warren Vald controls mounts every day. When Shio finally reaches the lab, she finds her answers along with an unthinkable weapon that will center her in a crucial magic uprising against Warrenvald. But is she ready to leave the safety of the outskirts and face her power? I was born in Rota, Spain in 1991 on a military base and proceeded to be shipped around to several naval bases around the world until high school. I didn't make many friends that way, but I did develop a strong imagination and love for escapism through reading and writing. I believe in writing what you know, so my stories typically include elements of mental health, othering, and addiction. I'm fine now. I currently live in Philadelphia with my cute and anxious dog, Melez. Thank you for considering me and my book. Okay, Carly, what did you think of the query letter? I appreciated that they gave us the disclaimer. They know this isn't our specialty. And we have been talking on the podcast about upcoming episodes with different specialized agents. So um, we hope that's on the roster to come. But for today, yeah, I don't represent a lot of fantasy, but I will critique this just like any other critique. So, you know, I really liked that this author kind of spelled out the, as a queer Black woman, I'm intentional with my characters. You know, I, I really liked that explanation. I think that was really just like warm and inclusive and, you know, helps us to look forward to all of those um those great identities. I was a little bit confused. And, you know, if, if you're following along with the drinking game, Carly gets confused a lot. She's a very, very tired woman. Some of the wording choices, it's because it, I know it's so hard, right? Like we're trying to build this world and be specific while like doing so, so, so much, right? So down at the bottom, we're talking a little bit about the world building when they say when they make their way behind enemy lines, whispers of a magic rebellion against uh, world vault follow. Like I almost feel like we need that world building at the top to set the stakes, not only for the character, but for the world, right? Like why is this happening? Not only to the character, but why is this world disrupting itself at this time as well? Like you have two opportunities to kind of have conflict, right? Which is what makes, you know, fantasy so exciting and, and which makes those worlds so specific, right? Like the author created this whole world, right? So why did you create this world? So I do think we might need that world building at the top a little bit or, or just woven into why, again, these stakes are for not only the world, but the character as well. So I would probably move that, move that part up. And a little bit of the wording about the killing. So it says, Warnvald targeted her and her father when she was a child killing him while she escaped and so when you use the word like him and father and and her a child like sometimes it's better just to use people's names the he and the her and the she and the that like that gets really confusing because we're trying to do so much especially in fantasy trying to use characters names i think is, is really important i wanted to know more about you know she's joined by a charming thief with a troubling past so we get this isn't you know just her journey but i wasn't clear on what the stakes are for him for the sake of the query 
we might need to focus on the main character only and the world building. I don't know if we need to focus on the thief here, even if, again, depends on how important they are in the book, but it's just, I think it might just be a little bit too confusing unless you can justify the stakes really clearly and easily. And we end with a rhetorical question, but is she ready to leave the safety of the outskirts and face her power? We presumably know the answer to this. This is what the whole book is about, right? So I would just strike that through or just find another way to say that in a more definitive sentence. But I thought the author bio paragraph was great. So overall, my feedback is just figure out how to balance the world building and the character building in a way that is equally as exciting. And uh, Cece, what did you think? So before we begin, I just wanted to say hi, Chantel. Thank you for creating that drinking game. Carly, Bianca, and I are so appreciative because... We are over-caffeinated humans who read tons of query letters. And so the drinking game where we take a sip of whatever cozy beverage of choice we have with us every time we are confused just makes this a little bit more fun. So shout out to Chantal. I want to echo all of Carly's words. I, I actually took me a long time to figure out what wasn't working here for me. And there's a lot that is working. The author did a really great job with both the beginning and the end of the query letter. It's really the plot paragraph. I wasn't getting a sense of what the escalation of the stakes were because we start the story knowing that she's being hunted. And we start the story knowing that she's one step away from finding this magic, and magic is the wrong word, but like the, the key to giving her all her answers. When you start a story with a really gripping and powerful inciting incident, that is awesome for the purposes of a hook. But remember, that means that that level of tension becomes baseline as it should. So you have to find ways to escalate that. I get the journey. She did mention the journey, right? The journey that they go on with two friends, which actually made me think of Wizard of Oz. But I don't understand what happens in the journey. I think I wanted a little bit more detail on the plot. And, you know, in terms of, of fantasy, it's true that I don't gravitate towards like hardcore fantasy, but I do love fantasy elements, I have like four projects that I'm going out with this fall that all have fantasy elements, whether it's urban fantasies, one of the books has zombies. The other, as an example, has a really high concept premise where it's like exactly our world, but one thing changes. Some of my favorite books have fantasy elements like The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern and The Age of Miracles by Karen Thompson Walker. So it's not that, you know, you can still think of me when you think of fantasy, just it's more the fantasy that will appeal to, to everyone. So I just want listeners to know that. Awesome. Cece, thanks. All right, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? Can you give us a bit of an overview of them? So we open with a scene of our protagonist kind of spying on this town called Jackaltown. It's very visual, which was really great. I really liked the balance here of knowing there's some world building that has to happen, but we're doing it through the character's eyes, which I thought was great because the character is spying, right? And we're also, as the reader, learning what's going on. So I thought that was really great. And then we kind of just move into the character, um, like making their way, you know, from spying and to infiltrating. So that's kind of what happens in this scene. There were so many lovely, lovely details here. Things like Shio brought her rusted and worn binoculars. I thought that was a really great detail. Could either speak to that they were very trusted and she only trusts these like rusty and worn ones, or it could just be economically, she can't purchase new ones, right? So we're like, we're learning something about the character here. So I thought that was really great. There was another line that says, um, Shio knew exactly where to look. It had been the same scene she scrutinized every night for the last week. 
right? A little bit of insight there in the sense that we know that she's been spying for a week doing her research, but it wasn't like Shia's been doing her research, right? So I, I really liked how subtle that was. And so I was a little bit curious about where the drama was going to happen here, right? Because this is a big witnessing, observing scene. We know she's being hunted. There are inherent stakes with being an outsider, right? And infiltrating, right? There's like fear and, and everything like that that's happening here. But I was really waiting for the guards to see her, for her to realize she forgot something in her pack that she really needed. Like what is happening here that's really going to, you know, spur on this drama? Because the setting itself it is really interesting. Another thing I thought was great in terms of the description of the character, right? I think everybody battles with, how do I describe this character to readers without, you know, being so pointed about like exactly what they look like? And, and there were some subtle things here, like her thighs touched at the top, which was such a beautiful, subtle way, just being like, your girl's got some muscles, <laughs> you know? And I just thought that was just so, so well done. Really, really subtle way of, of just kind of explaining somebody. So I, I really liked that. Other than that, I was just, yeah, as I said, just kind of waiting to see what where the drama was going to happen. There wasn't anything essentially wrong with this per se. It's more just, I kind of want to know, you know, what's really going to kick this drama into high gear. On the podcast, we've talked about following format and this one was single spaced. So so shout out to everybody for following the rules because this one did not, but we did accept it. In the future, we are actually going to be more strict with our rules and we will not be considering anybody that doesn't follow our formatting guidelines because that is industry standard. Great. Thanks, Colleen. Cece, what were your thoughts? I thought that this is tricky because on the one hand, spying is great to start a scene where there's so much world building. That is a great, excellent point that I hadn't thought of until I heard Carly say it. But yes, it's perfect because if you're spying, you have to be like intense intentionally observing. On the other hand, though, like, is it at all possible for her not to be alone? I guess not because she's a loner. But then like Carly said, something needs to happen. Like the essential thing isn't on her backpack because right now it's, we have this really, really strongly written scene with, with, with great setting description and really strong character description. And the emotion is on the page. I can highlight where the emotion is, but I can't highlight where you earned the emotion. And by that, I mean, I have to see your character going through life things, you know, to earn whatever emotion you're feeling. Um, we have the emotion where she sees the town. But again, because we don't really know what the town means, we're not feeling that with you. We accept that you're feeling that. And then we have the emotion where she's looking at the notebook that her father left her. And there are these words that leap right into her throat when she reads them. That That's the word choice the, the writer um, went with, which, which is great. You know, we have a description of the handwriting. You know, we have a description of her father even a little bit. But but I, I don't know anything about that. And so I think I would have preferred to save this great notebook scene for a little bit later and have her face an obstacle. It could be something really small, but face an obstacle so that we can feel right along with her. The thing about fantasy that typically makes people connect is that even though you're talking about a world that is totally different from our own, maybe you have, I don't know, dragons or zombies or whatever is it that you have, right? Like magic. And we don't have that in, in our world, but we do still have people facing challenges and overcoming those challenges. And so it's really, really important to give me something familiar in the opening scene of a fantasy novel. I am a strong believer in that. Everything can be different from the setting to the language to the creatures, but the human element of there's this one thing I want, there's something in my way, a mistake was made or a challenge was presented or a formidable opponent appeared. 
and then I have to overcome that, that is universal. So I would tweak these these pages to perhaps add a bit more drama. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, will you read the second query letter for us? Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, I am seeking representation for my psychological thriller, Open Season. I discovered you while listening to the Books with Hook segment. The feedback you both provide has helped me improve my query letter and novel. Carly, I think you will relate to the main character. She loves a good glass of wine, although she prefers Willamette Pianot Noir to Napa Cabernet. Cecilia, you said you are drawn to books centered around dysfunctional families and the family dynamic in open season is dysfunctional as they come. The hunters become the hunted in an 83,000 word thriller. A standalone with the opportunity for a sequel, open season is perfect fans for Karen Slaughter's Pretty Girls, Darby Kane's Pretty Little Wife, and Rachel Hawkins' The Wife Upstairs. Charlie Roberts gets in a bride share, but instead of ending up at the airport, she ends up in a luxury lodge in the woods with three other women. But this is no spa weekend. The women are taunted, hunted, and killed by a mysterious group of burlap-masked men in Tom Ford tuxedos. Charlie manages to escape only to wake up in a private hospital being told she's been in a horrific car accident. Charlie moves on with her life, gets married, and is expecting her first child when she discovers the truth about her past and seeks revenge. In Charlie's journey for retribution, she discovers a secret society run by a group of powerful and privileged men. Think Skull and Bones meet a Silicon Valley TED Talk. A dual POV novel where Charlie, a gritty female heroine, fights against the elite and the organization that manipulated, toyed, and hunted her. Open season takes you on an unexpected journey, but one thing is sure you'll think twice before getting into a rideshare alone. I spent the last 10 years working in the fashion and e-commerce space. I grew up as a modern-day Eloise, living in hotels throughout Asia and the Middle East. At the age of 18, I moved to the United States and attended Pepperdine University. My whole life, I have been scared. I turned to thrillers and writing to help ease the burden of my fear. Open Season was born from that fear. I currently live in Miami with my husband, Eric, and our large mango tree. I am working on my second novel, Social Butterfly, a tale of gaslighting and murder unfolding over social media. Open Season is my debut novel. Thanks for your time. I look forward to hearing from you. Best, Stephanie. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Cece, what was your thoughts on the query letter? I want to say that, Stephanie, you are wrong. Napa Cabernet is better than the Pinot Noir. Like, obviously. (laughs) So yeah, that's blasphemy. I really like that your title doesn't have pretty or girl or wife in the title. And I am not, by the way, bashing the books that do because they sell, they do really well. And I totally get it. I read them. It's fine. But have I just struck me how all the comps have these words in common, right? Like you either have at least one pretty or one girl or one wife. Okay. I really like this query letter. I remember reading it the very first time a while ago because I actually met with Stephanie at Manuscript Academy. She booked a 10-minute consultation with me and she was absolutely lovely. And I was very intrigued by the premise of her novel when I read this for the first time. A few, few small details um, before I get to the big stuff. You should add a hyphen between dual and POV. So a dual POV novel, since it's modifying the, the noun novel. TED Talk is all caps. It's an acronym, T-E-D. It stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. So make that all caps. In terms of the plot, 
And this is something that I have spoken with Stephanie about. I didn't quite get that she was told, like she was told that she was in a car accident and that everything was her imagination, right? Like, and I know this from having spoken to the author, but when I first read this, I remember thinking, so she wakes up and was told she was in a car accident. What about her memories? Like, and then obviously she's, she's being gaslighted, right? Like, which is awful. So, so I think I make that a little bit more clear for people like me who might not quite get that. I also wanted to understand how exactly the discovery of the truth happened? Was there perhaps a very interesting incident that led to that? Because I get that her life is different. She's married. She's expecting her first child. But I wanted to know, like, how how did she stumble upon the truth? I think that's that's really important. Because what happened in, in the lodge is almost like backstory. So like, I, I guess that's one of my questions too, right? Does this, most of this book take place after her discovery? Is it more like a prologue situation where we we learned that there was a hunting in the lodge. And then, you know, the story is really about her reclaiming the narrative of her life that she was denied, kind of like Promising Young Woman. What happened in college with the protagonist, the Promising Young Woman and her best friend, isn't really what's happening in the present day scenes and conflicts. It's more like the stuff that brought her to this place. And then the action that happens is informed by that. So I guess that's also a question I had that I wanted to understand. I also, this is a major question, but who's the other point of view? Like it's Charlie and who else? I want to know, because I don't think we have another name in this query letter. We, we have mentions of a lot of people and it's fine to not have lots of names. It's actually a good thing, but if it's a dual POV novel, I want to know who's what, what, what the other POV is, you know, whose it is. I just, I want to say that I remember meeting this person and she was very memorable and very lovely. And I think this is a really, really, really cool hook. I will have lots of notes on the pages when we get to that, but it, it would definitely intrigue me. I would definitely read this and go, oh, interesting. I think there'll be no hesitation in terms of lots of agents requesting this because I think this really succinct hook is perfect for this category. Being a really competitive category, the top sellers on Amazon in terms of thrillers are the ones that have very clear, sharp hooks. And it might not allude to the whole story, right? But here we get a very, very clear hook. And even though, even if it's backstory, right? Like thrillers need that really specific, intriguing, unique hook. Because again, there's a lot of them out there. I would add a, an adjective. So it says the hunters become the hunted in an 83,000 word thriller, just like blank thriller, right? Like what kind of thriller? There's a lot of thrillers out there. So I think I just would have liked to one more qualifier there. Obviously we get to these comps and I'm starting to piece the puzzles together, but I think there's a great opportunity there just to add another word. Uh, one of the things I wanted to know is... Did she escape or was she spared or what was the reason that she made it out of this luxury lodge, you know, horror situation? Because I think it matters if she escaped or if she was spared, like whether she's always worried somebody's gonna be chasing her or she knows she was spared because of XYZ reason. Like, I think it affects the psychology. But overall, you know, I agree with Cece. What's the other POV is a huge, huge, huge question here. <laughs> I mean, that kind of threw me for a loop. I have... Again, no idea who this other POV is, but the, the chill here, the vibe, the uniqueness, I mean, all of these things are, are going to make this get really easy, easy requests, which is great, right? The, the That means the query letter does its job. Some of the things that really stood out to me was the line, you'll think twice before getting into a rideshare alone. Like, how creepy is that? That's amazing. And I also really liked this line in the author bio. My whole life, I've been scared. I turned to thrillers and writing to ease 
help ease the burden of my fear. I thought that was really lovely. I mean, it's such a subtle way of just really kind of grounding us in terms of, you know, why, you know, why are you drawn to this category and things like that. So I just thought that was a really nice kind of vulnerable moment. We know this is special because of how much time we're talking about it, right? But when Carly mentioned, I wanted to know why, like how she escaped, if she escaped, if she was spared, like what's the reason? I was already thinking in my head when I read this, I think it was the very first time, like, I bet you she was spared because one of the men fell for her or maybe even knew her from some other situation. And that's the guy she ended up marrying. He's the one who's been gaslighting her whole life. You know, like I had already all this web of stuff happening in my head based on my natural paranoia. (laughs) And so this is this is why this is special. Right. Like when someone has questions and someone else is uh, echoing those questions and going, what if it's this? And then someone else builds on that. And this is what makes books so special. We're all talking about human nature and we're each projecting our own stuff onto the story and getting really excited about it. So so brava to the author. Wonderful. Cece, will you give us an overview of those opening pages and then give us your take on them? First scene is a prologue that takes place on August 15th, 2017. There is a very clear timestamp. Adam and Charlie are laying in bed and we know that they you know, sleep together and that this is something that they're still trying to figure out exactly what it is. And Charlie knows, Charlie tells the reader in her head that she knows the moment it changed, the moment it became about something else. And so we get a flashback on the very first page that is a prologue, nonetheless, where we go to some other date um, where the protagonist, Charlie, shares that She lost her mom. And then Adam does the same. Adam shares that his mom also left him. In Charlie's case, her mom died. And in Adam's case, his mom left him. So they bond over that. And then you can tell by my voice that I was not pleased about this. We go to October 1st, 1992. And we see the day Adam, very sadly, lost his mom. Lost his mom sounds wrong. It sounds like she died. But like that his mom left him, right? Like she, he was taken to this cabin that they went to every year, I think. But this time it was different because his mom rushed him there. He didn't even have shoes on. And the next day when he woke up, his mom wasn't there anymore. And his dad came to pick him up. And his dad tells him, you know, someday you'll understand mom's gone. She left a note. She left me, but I know she loved you very much. And that is where the pages stop. Okay. A lot to unpack here. Stephanie, if you're listening to me, please don't do this to us. Please do not start this with this connection they share and then take us into a mini flashback in the prologue to an unspecified date. You don't need to. You just, you can add a line about that, but we don't need to see the scene. And then please don't take us to 1992. How Adam became broken, because I'm pretty sure that's where you're going with this, right? Like how he became broken. And if he is the guy behind the whole thing, then maybe, you know, this is what made him become a misogynist. Just saying my theories, my theories, but, but how he became broken, not relevant right now. We don't want to see this. I am saying this with all the love in the universe. Okay. Throw these pages out. Started a totally different scene, completely different scene. It's just totally different scene. Okay. And I, I mentioned this to you when we chatted. So you know this. I want to see some something else. Present day scene. I don't want a prologue unless the prologue is the lodge, unless the prologue is her getting in the car. I don't want to see this connection. If you want to keep it, however, because of course you are the god of this world, as I always say, here are my notes. Head hopping, don't do it. Paragraph one, we are in Charlie's head at some point, and then we go to Adam's head, right? Like we have 
And for an instant, he thought, this is what it must be like when you love someone. So we're getting Adam's thought. And then in the same paragraph, just different line, she, she is Charlie, she found herself entertaining the idea of breaking her rule that night. Don't head hop. Please don't head hop. It's very confusing. Sorry, I just want to add there because we've had some listeners reach out and go, you know, what is the problem with omniscient point of view? Why are you guys so against omniscient point of view? And we're not against it when it's done well. But unfortunately, very, very few authors can do it well. And it's generally, you know, authors at the top of their game. Our issue with omniscient point of view is when this kind of confusion arises. So it's not that we take umbrage with with omniscient, it's that we've got problems with the problems that can arise from omniscient. The other thing to add about this, and I'll add it in here and then CC can keep going, is that I don't know how to explain this very well, but basically as the god of this world, the author gets to choose everything, right? You get to choose who's POV, like what literally you are the puppet master of this universe. And by a puppet master choosing omniscient head hopping, you're just sucking the intrigue. Like you're almost like, I don't know, a, a nice way to put this, but you're just like cutting your own legs off, right? Like you are taking away your opportunity to build intrigue and suspense by just by choosing this head hopping, by choosing this omniscient uh, setup. So you're really just robbing yourself of the opportunity to create intrigue by by choosing this. And I don't know if it's necessarily something where like it's a novice, you know, writer who's just trying to feel their way through this. And that's what they thought was best. But everything is a choice, right? You, this is your world. Everything is a choice. And you really have to be able to justify your choices, right? And I just don't think that you can justify this choice. And just, you know, on that, like somebody like Louise Penny does the omniscient point of view in the whole Three Pines series. And so, you know, writers have reached out and said, well, if she can do it in a cozy mystery, why can't I do it in my kind of thing? But again, she does it so subtly and she does it so well. And she certainly never head hops like this. She does it kind of as being this god of this world, overlooking everything. And then she zooms in and out at will, but there's never confusion as to whose head we're in. So, you know, when a writer does it well, unpack it for yourself. How are they doing it that they're doing it well? And how could you perhaps emulate that instead of, you know, making the mistakes that make us go, ooh, we're nervous about omniscient point of view. I do agree that it takes a very, very skilled author. And so if you're doing it, do it knowing that you are trying the hardest thing and that's okay, but you should know it. And like Harley said, you should be able to justify it. I would also add, you said this was dual POV. There is an expectation with genre conventions that dual POV means I get first one head and then the other, preferably in different chapters, but at least with line breaks. And as a third point, there's a difference between omniscient point of view and head hopping. Omniscient point of view is an intentional device by which an author is literally looking at everything. And like Bianca said, we zoom, right? Like you can see almost like a camera going inside someone's head and coming out. And I know exactly where it starts and I know exactly where it stops. Typically, I can't think of a single book actually that doesn't even, um, that doesn't at least give me a new paragraph when doing that, right? Like a lot of people do one head per chapter. A lot of people do one head per break, like line break or section break. And at least a new paragraph. This person didn't even do a new paragraph. So yeah, who did that was J.K. Rowling in The Casual Vacancy. So she did that without the line breaks or the scene breaks, etc. Or even paragraph? 
Because I loved that book. Without even paragraphs. And you didn't even notice it because you did didn't it even so skillfully. But again, this is an author who had written seven internationally best-selling books before she wrote this particular book. Loved, loved, yeah. loved The Casual yeah. Vacancy. Okay. So anyway, that that is all my spiel about the head hopping. When it comes to dialogue, another thing the author did here is that she compressed dialogue into like the single paragraph. So we have two people talking, um, Adam and his mom, and it's all in the same chunk of paragraph, which is quite a long paragraph. It takes up half a page. Don't know if the author did this so she could sneak in some more words per page, right? Because we do cap it at five pages, but whatever the reason, don't do it. Each new line of dialogue, and by that I mean like someone speaking, like a new person speaking, gets its own paragraph. It just, it helps with readability. This stuff is important. I also don't know what page, where am I? Page four, keep in mind that the first page is a query letter. There's a sentence that says, their cabin in the woods, comma, he smiled. And I don't, I, was that supposed to be a thought? Like I, it just sounded awkward. So revise that, I think. Dialogue also needed a little bit of work between Adam and his dad. His dad sounds so formal. And even if that is intentional, then I need that to be clearer. Lines like, come here, Adam. I am so glad I found you. I was worried. It just sounds incredibly, I don't think that's what a father would do when a father races to a cabin to find his son, his his child there unattended. Like, can you imagine? His head heart must be pounding out of his chest. Like, same with the, the line that goes, um, mama's gone. She left a note. She left me, but I know she loved you very much. There's sadness in his voice, but there's very little desperation. And I think this man would be feeling desperate. And remember, we also got, in terms of the head hopping, last thing, we also get the dad's head here. He didn't tell Charlie the last part. So I, I don't know whether this was Charlie realizing now that I'm reading it again, maybe I'm wrong, but I also think we get a little bit of the dad's head. So I'm confused. So yeah, Stephanie, I think you have to start in a different place. Just saying. For my, my strong, strong opinion is just scrap these pages, keep them for later if you need them for later. Start in a different place. What do you think, Carly? You agree or no? I agree with, with nearly everything. You know, there's a prologue there, not our favorite thing. We're going back in time time to the past too soon like I agree with all of that I think the all of the intentions are there you know and I I think that I'm I'm a little worried we're coming off harsh on this author when we do that usually only when you know we think there's a lot of potential so I just want this author to know that we're being critical because we you know we think there's a lot of potential and I do think the intentions are good right the intentions are we're trying to set up the scene we're trying to create emotionality and we're trying to explain why the characters are the way they are, right? So I understand the intentions. But in terms of, like Cece said, is this the right place to start this book? Probably not, right? Probably not. And in terms of the genre expectations, in terms of your comps, and again, we talked about how competitive the thriller market is, it's probably just not the right place to start the book. So that's kind of, you know, my, my overarching view on this. I think there's a lot of really lovely things. I caught something really subtle, which is in the prologue. It says, Adam gently played with Charlie's hair as she laid her head on his chest. And then later on, we see that Adam's mom would play with his hair. It says Adam would fall asleep as she played with his hair. And I just thought that was like a nice little like people's way of showing love um, in a really subtle way. I thought that was really well done. I also think one of the tough things here, and I know we've already talked about all the initiate stuff, but one of the issues is we don't establish voice clearly enough when we're doing all of this head hopping. And we don't have this kind of like Bridgerton style omniscient like somebody being the puppeteer of the of the book itself like what, what's happening is that we're really just getting a very muted you know baseline 
in terms of the emotionality because of this head hopping. And I'm worried we're just not getting enough voiciness in this book because of this omniscient kind of style. So I think there's just a ton of potential here. This hook is so interesting. I just don't think these pages are doing this, this hook justice because, as I said, I think you're going to get a ton of requests based on this query. And I just want people to fall in love with this. And I just don't think it's in the right place. Awesome. Carly, thank you. I'm now going to read the third query letter. Dear Ms. Murray, Ms. Lira, and Ms. Waters, I stumbled upon your podcast recently, and it has been a crash course in the world of publishing and a delightful immersion into the craft of writing. Ms. Lira and Ms. Waters, based on your interest in memoir, I am thrilled to share To Catch the Wind, my 66,000-word memoir in essay. To Catch the Wind will appeal to listeners of the podcast Terrible, thanks for asking. It has exploration of faith, similar to Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah Jenkins, and will sit well on shelves alongside Bravey by Alexi Pappas. Please note that these pages contain descriptions of an eating disorder, which may be triggering. When Sarah turned 16, she received a copy of her grandfather's self-published memoir. It is his improbable survival of a gunshot to the chest during World War II and his admonition to live to the limit of one's potential frame Sarah's understanding of her own destiny. But when she is diagnosed with anorexia and bulimia, she misreckoned with her perceived failure. As she struggles with body image and her relationship with food, Sarah's eating disorder reroutes her life plans and all, I think it should be, and calls into question her belief in God as she finds herself perpetually in recovery. A personal awakening at her daughter's birth and the discovery of running launch her into a season of newfound confidence and what she believes to be freedom from her troubled past. 11 years after her daughter's birth, Sarah considers herself fully recovered, but a re-examination of her grandfather's words call into question if she really is healed as she has shared publicly, or if this is just another construct of her religious upbringing. And if so, how will that impact her now tween daughter? To Catch the Wind is a vulnerable reflection on identity, spiritual trauma, self-love, and family legacy. I have a BA in English teaching from the University of New Hampshire. In 2010, I transitioned from my role as a high school English teacher to stay-at-home mom and started the blog runfargirl.com, now sarahcanny.com, which averaged 50,000 monthly page views at its height of popularity. I was a contributing blogger for Women's Running Magazine from 2016 to 2017, and my work has appeared in print and online at Women's Running and Runner's World. I am also the founder and host of the Women's Running Retreat, Rise Run Retreat, attracting hundreds of women since 2015 to my intimate digital and in-person running experiences. This endeavor has precipitated a thriving membership community. In addition, I have a healthy online platform featuring 20,000 plus followers on Instagram, 9,000 plus likes on Facebook, and an email list with 6,000 plus subscribers. While I am not a professional runner, I've managed to land myself on a few podiums, including a bronze medal at the 2020 World Snowshoe Running Championship. When I'm not running across the snow, you'll find me riding the equally quirky and obscure elliptigo on the rural roads near my New Hampshire home, where I live with my husband, three children, and a failing garden. I appreciate your time and consideration. Best, Sarah. Okay, Carly, do you want to give us an overview of those pages and your take on it? So this is a 
memoir, memoir and essays. And so this entire query is essentially an author bio, right? Like all of this is explaining what's going on in this person's life, the hook, the memoir. And then again, we have the author, the official author bio at the bottom. In terms of balance, this author bio is way too long. You know, this, all of this information could potentially be in supplementary material. A lot of time with memoir, we actually encourage people to write a proposal separate from the actual manuscript itself, because we have to sell memoir like a novel, but we also have to pitch it like nonfiction, which means we have to place it in its market, talk about marketing, all of that sort of stuff. So I just think all in all, this query is trying to do way, way, way too much. And really, I think the lead is buried here. Like, I'm still not exactly clear on what is the hook of this all. You know, exploration of faith isn't a hook, right? That's a theme or a topic. So I'm wondering if the inciting incident is something to do with, like, because there's a line at the end that says, how will this impact her now, tween daughter? I'm wondering if, like, the inciting incident is buried in there or the hook is buried in there because there's a lot of this intergenerational uh, potentially trauma um, of, you know, we're talking about the grandfather and then we're talking about her and then the daughter. So I just think everything's kind of buried. Like, I'm just not really clear on what, you know, as an agent, it's my job to sell things. And I'm just not really sure on what I'm selling. It's not that this is not interesting. It's just, I don't know where to place this in the market. I don't really know what this is about in present day, right? We're talking about grandfather in the past. We're talking about, you know, an eating dis- a disorder in the past that she's recovered from, right? So then what is happening in the present, right? What is this book about? So that's kind of what, what I really, really need to know. I feel like I want to echo Carly's words and say I also could not find the hook. And this I know is a huge challenge with memoirs because, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't think my life has a hook. And I say, yeah, no life does. Your story of your life has to though, right? Like there is a difference. How you live your life is one thing and you don't have to have any type of angle or hook there, but how you frame it in a story, you absolutely need a hook. One thing that I would suggest that the author watch out for is language that suggests that the journey is all internal. It's particularly noticeable in paragraph three as she struggles with body image. What is a body image struggle if not something that happens inside our heads and hearts? And it's a huge deal, don't get me wrong, but it's not something that someone on the outside can necessarily see. Calls into question her belief in God. That is also an internal struggle. Again, crisis of faith, very powerful, but it is something that happens inside of us. A personal awakening at her daughter's birth, another internal development. Discovery of running. It's something she's doing by herself. A newfound confidence, something that's happening inside her, believes to be freedom. And again, a framing of a feeling. Next paragraph, the same thing happens when she mentions that she considers herself fully recovered. There's a word re-examination and questions if she really is healed. All of these things are internal. This is the great irony of memoirs. In order to write a memoir, you need to do self-examination. People always say that the only person who can write your memoir is you. I call bullshit. A really, really great therapist, your therapist specifically, if you were obviously honest with your therapist, coupled with your favorite storyteller, could write your memoir. Because it's all about getting the stuff that's in your head, in your psyche, the stuff that happened to you and framing that in a compelling way. Like a novelist with your therapist could write your memoir. And that is what you have to do. As a memoirist, you have to pretend like you are not you anymore. Take a step back, get all the examination stuff, all the stuff you've worked on, all the stuff from your psyche, your traumas, your brokenness, your healing, your journey. And then you have to pretend like you're a novelist. 
not in the sense that you're going to make stuff up, but in the sense that you're going to frame it in a compelling story. It is a huge challenge. It is by far the hardest thing to write, in my opinion, a memoir, way harder than it is to write a novel. And writing a novel is really, really tough. So I personally think that the line of reflection on identity, spiritual trauma, self-love and family legacy is a great line. You just need to add a hook. And mine for that hook, the hook is there somewhere. I'm sure you just have to dig and we'll find it and we'll frame it. And it'll be awesome. I have every confidence. Thanks, Cece. Carly, your take on those opening pages? So to set the scene here, the character is out and about for a walk or a run outside of their house in the neighborhood. A neighbor slows down and starts talking to them outside their window or you know, out the window um, as this person is outside. And then we get to a part one. So kind of prologue part one. And then in part one, we move to the story uh, a little bit about her grandpa in the World War II angle of, of the story. So that's kind of our, our two sections here. So my critique of the prologue is that we're focusing too much on the neighbor and not enough on our main character. So I just really thought that was unnecessary. And we didn't learn enough through that opening, like the neighbor rolling down the window and talking to her while she's running or walking. I just I don't think we learned enough from that. So I, I just wasn't clear on why that exactly had to happen. I really liked there was a section about talking about gardening with kids. And she says, uh, we started forgetting to water. We stopped watching the little green shoots stop growing. You know, they bent over, turned yellow and died. And it was just about this whole like gardening with kids. And it was so relatable. She said, I'd failed to carry the initial momentum of being the good mom who does things with her kids through to the end. I got in the timing all off and we tossed the molding and yellow baby plants into their biogradable pots. And I just thought like sometimes it's such a good metaphor for, for parenting. Sometimes when you set out to do an activity with your kids and you're like, this is the way it's going to go. It's going to be this beautiful little picturesque moment. And then you're like, yeah, and life got in the way. And then, you know, our, our plants didn't live. So um, so that kind of made me smile because that was very relatable. But really, this whole scene is just about gardening. And, um, and I just didn't really feel like we, we learned enough in this scene. It was too long. So I just, I just probably felt like we could cut that one. And then we get to part one and we're learning about the grandpa. And so the way that this project is framed partly in the query letter and as we're moving through the pages is that there's some similarities experienced or the author is trying to make some parallels between the grandpa's experience in World War II and her eating disorder struggles. I'm having a hard time seeing the connection and feeling the connection. Like the way that the author frames it, they say, you know, I've often said that to struggle with an eating disorder is to be at war with oneself. Yes, agreed. A physical war and a mental war. And I think the same was true for my grandfather. There was a physical war of marching through the rain-soaked jungles of Okinawa, the holding of what remained of his good friend John in the foxhole after they'd been shot, and the hunting and being hunted and finally getting the shot himself. So I agree with the first part of that. I'm just I'm just not really seeing the, the connection ultimately between being in the trenches and holding your dead friend in the mud million miles away from home and an eating disorder. Like, it's not that these are, I don't know, like one of them is, both of them could arguably be life and death, but I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not seeing it. And maybe it's just it's me. I'm not, you know, personally, I'm not seeing it, but I have a feeling it's just, this isn't on the page clearly enough. And so I'm worried this whole book, the thesis of this entire book is trying to make this connection. And I'm worried about that because I think that the connection should be really clear from the start. I really, really liked this little letter that the letter exchange, it says uh, an inscription with my, in my grandfather's handwriting. 
to Sarah with the most deeply felt prayer that you and those you love will never have to go through experiences like these. But know this, if you do, God will give you the strength to bear it with love, Grandpa B. I love that. I mean, just, you know, we're going through COVID and this huge global pandemic. You know, I just thought that beautiful, that beautiful note is something that can connect with people. So I think there's glimpses here of like what can connect with people. But I just, I'm just wish these, these links were a little bit clearer in terms of the thesis. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece, what was your take on that? You know, the opening scene, the inner life was really interesting because the neighbor offers her cucumbers because she has tons of extra cucumbers in her garden. And without even thinking, our protagonist says no. And then she kind of like questions herself. Like, why is she saying no? She does need cucumbers. There's a line that says the impulsive answer slid so easily past the part of me that keeps in the lies because it does become an addiction, right? Like when you have to lie to, typically when you start lying when you're really young, you start lying to protect yourself. You start lying for a very, I mean, I want to say legitimate reason because it implies that I get to decide what's legitimate and what's not, but a reason that typically elicits a lot of empathy on people, which is to protect yourself, to protect your loved ones. And then it becomes an addiction. So the inner life is absolutely spectacular. I kept highlighting a whole bunch of lines, which I will not read out now because it really will, we'll talk for five hours if I do that, but wonderful, wonderful inner life with this struggle of hers, this inner struggle with her own personality. That being said, the tension isn't enough in my opinion to justify that this be the opening scene. I think we need something with a bit more tension. The motion's there, the inner life is there, but the, the what's happening on the page needs to also be a little bit more interesting. I also when we are in the, we are in the scene with the in the past part one called called war, there's a little bit of repetition. On paragraph one, she says, and Carly did read this out loud as well, you know, except this one was a war with myself, like referring to the kind of war. And then in paragraph two, I've often said that the struggle with an eating disorder is to be at war with oneself. Like you've said almost the exact same line before. So we know that you often say this because you've said it twice. So I don't think you need that repetition. The author mentioned in the query letter that this might be triggering. And I totally get why she did it because it's so well written in terms of the struggle with the eating disorder that yes, it can be triggering. And this is just a testament to how well written this is because there's a great book that I love called Thin Girls by Diana Clark. That book is incredibly triggering because it's authentic. And another book called Juliet the Maniac, incredibly triggering because it's so authentic. So so I get it and you're you're not wrong, but remember that this is also a testament to your to your writing chops. One question that I had was her grandfather left her essentially possibly his most treasured possession. Like there's an inscription to her. I wanted I wanted in on her head in that moment. Like when her dad gave her that, like, did she think it was unusual for him to leave that to her? Was she surprised that she was singled out as special? Or was she super confident in the fact that, yeah, she was grandpa's favorite? That matters. That tells me about her character and about her headspace. How you grow up in a family dynamic, safe and the security that you're the favorite one, whether you're being delusional or not, that's a different layer. Or thinking that you're the one who, you know, isn't the favorite and your parents or your grandparents prefer someone else, that matters. And not just with siblings, with everyone. I want that family dynamic to be unpacked a little bit more. I also want to stay immersed in the scene that we are in, as opposed to hopping to other moments. There's a little bit of hopping. There's line like the same stairs where in five years I'd walk down in a wedding dress. I don't think we need that. It's not that it's a bad line, but can I can I stay in the scene with you? 
for, for me, for my taste, and this is a very personal taste thing. I like memoirs where when I see a scene that's happening in the past, I am seeing the person in that moment, including their inner life. I want to bear witness to the evolving consciousness of this human. I don't want the mature looking back, all knowing person sprinkling in wisdom. There is a time for that sometimes, but it can't be all the time because then it removes the tension because you're you're alive and wise and well. So so no offense. But then, you know, I, I it, it the moment the, what's happening in the moment becomes a little bit less interesting because of that, because it is a story. This is about your story. We're critiquing your story. We're not critiquing your life. I always feel like a jerk when I'm critiquing memoirs because it, it could come across the wrong way. So this is special. I like it. I would just tweak these things. Awesome. Thank you, Cece. We're starting to hear rumblings of very good news of people that have formerly been either on the podcast or critiqued on the podcast. And so we would love it if anybody does get an offer of representation to email us and let us know and also let us know if we're able to share the news live on the podcast because we would love to celebrate everybody. So if you're listening, if I'm talking about you, let me know if I can share your story or if you have a good news story, please send it in to us. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. 
Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Before we go on to today's guest, I just want to remind you of two upcoming courses that we have. On the 12th of October at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Carly is hosting a webinar called The Business of How Authors Make Money. During this course, Carly will dive into the different types of publishers, what a profit and loss statement is, what parts of your contract can be negotiated, etc. It's one you absolutely don't want to miss. Then on the 20th of October at 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm hosting a course called Making Your Writing Shine at a Line Level. Now, most times when an agent turns down an opportunity to represent an author, it's because the writing just isn't there yet at a line level. And this course will give you practical advice with regards to improving your writing at a fundamental level, which then elevates the entire manuscript. To register for either of these courses, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the Courses tab, and you'll be directed from then. If you can't attend the courses live, no worries, both of them will be recorded and will be sent out to you afterwards with all the necessary resources. Then also thanks to everyone who has submitted for an upcoming Books with Hooks segment, which will run from November to February. We're working through all of those submissions and there's a lot of them. And you'll be hearing from us in the next few weeks if your work is chosen for one of them. We're really looking forward to that. Now for today's guest. Today's guest is a novelist, filmmaker and Zen Buddhist priest. She is the award-winning author of three novels, My Year of Meats, all over creation, and A Tale for the Time Being, which was a finalist for the 2013 Booker Prize. Her nonfiction work includes a memoir, The Face, A Time Code, and a documentary film, Harving the Bones. She is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and teaches creative writing at Smith College. It's my pleasure to welcome Ruth Ozeki. Welcome, Ruth. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. How exciting to get to chat to you. Thank you, Bianca. It's wonderful to be here. I love the, I love the name of the podcast. It's just yes, it's great. A, it's a bit irreverent. I'm a bit of a potty mouth, so I have to warn you about that up front. So am I. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to get along brilliantly. Right. So, Ruth, something that I came across when I was researching you ahead of this interview was that you published your first book at 42. Now, a ton of our listeners have got this mindset that they have to publish by 30 or they have to publish by 40. 
50 or by 50. And I've discussed on the podcast somebody like Delia Owens mm-hmm. who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing, and she published like close to 70. So could you tell us about your journey to publication and why it actually doesn't matter what age you publish at? That's the wonderful thing about, you know, about writing and about publishing is that it really doesn't matter. You know, you, you can take your time. And I think a lot of people, you know, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to write a novel until, you know, I was about, uh, I, well, I think I started it actually when I was 39. I'd had a, uh, you know, I, I never went to, you know, MFA program. I, you know, I never really studied creative writing, but I um, had, I worked in the, I, I kind of stumbled into the film and television business and, you know, uh, worked for, you know, Japanese television in particular for, for um, probably about a decade before I started writing. And um, I also started making my own films. So it was really, for me, you know, the, the journey was learning how to tell stories. You know, that was what I needed. That was what I needed to do. And I really did that um, when I was working in, in television. There's nothing like being in an editing room, you know, under like some crazy deadline, you know, to, to learn how to tell a story. And of course, television is very, you know, it's very demanding. Like you have to cut to, the, you have to get to the story very quickly. People don't have a lot of patience. They'll change the channel, right? So, so that was, you know, for me, it was, I wasn't really ready. I didn't know how to tell the story until, you know, I'd had more experience in my own life. And I think too, when I was, you know, when I was very young, like very young, when I, you know, when I read my first novel, right, I, I think I had an immediate sense that, oh, okay, this is, this is what I want to do, you know, but at the time, you know, I'm, I'm Asian American, you know, people weren't, Asian American women were not writing novels in English at that time, right? So I just didn't think that was, you know, that was okay. You know, I, I never, I just didn't think that was anything that, that somebody like me could do. Um, so again, you know, it, it took me a while to feel a sense of almost entitlement to write a novel. Uh, and that didn't happen until, until later as well. So in a way, I, I think that there's no, there's no cutoff. There's no best before date, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to writing, you can, you can jump in, you know, at any time. Some people jump in early and then burn out. Some people jump in early and last forever. And um, other people just, you know, they take their time and wait until they're ready. There's so many things you said there that I love. And one was, and I remember reading in an interview, you said when you started writing young, but you said that you were writing stories about like white people in England, because that's what you thought people People had to do and you weren't seeing your own kind of stories in literature and so you know you didn't think that those were the kind of stories you could write and so I feel like that's part of the almost permission you had to give yourself later in life was permission to tell your own stories. That's right that's right and and it was quite complicated I mean when I was you know when I was little Maxine Hong Kingston hadn't you know hadn't published yet Amy Tan hadn't published yet there were no books out there that I was aware of, you know, um, written by people who looked like me. So I thought when I was little that the only thing I was entitled to write was haiku, right? And and so that's not so great because as you can tell, like I'm a very wordy person, right? <laughs> I'm very verbose, right? <laughs> so the haiku form, you know, was, was not sort of natural 
you know, tad, tad constraining, <laughs> a little constraining. Right. Um, you know, and, and I, I remember I, I really did. I, I wrote haiku for, you know, when I was like six or seven or eight, and then I wrote poetry for a while and I'm not a very good poet. So that really wasn't working either. Um, it, it took a long time to figure it out. And then more women started, you know, more, more Asian American women started writing, which was fantastic. And, and suddenly the possibility existed where it hadn't before. And when I actually started writing, though, I do recall very strongly feeling that, you know, I, I was writing uh, My Year of Meats, my first novel, and there was an Asian American, Japanese American protagonist who was actually mixed race, just like me. And I remember thinking, first of all, thinking nobody's going to be interested in this, right? Nobody's going to be interested in this book because, you know, I mean, how many mixed race have Japanese, you know, it, it, I mean, there are actually a lot of us out there, but, you know, at the time I was thinking this is not what novels are about. It, it goes back to what you were saying, right? And I also realized that there was another constraint, which is that I realized that if I wrote a half, you know, a mixed race, half Japanese, half um, Anglo character, woman character, the readers would immediately assume that that character was me. They would assume that it's autobiographical. Now, this is something, this is a problem that a white dude would not have, right? Um, so I just decided to play with it, right? I decided, fine, people are going to assume that, you know, the character's name was Jane, and I decided to make Jane six feet tall and give her green hair so that readers <laughs> could tell us apart, right? I, I kind of turned it into a joke. And I proceeded to do that, like through every book. In each book, I, I kind of decided, well, through it, I'm just going to use mixed race characters in all in, you know, in my novels and, and see where that takes me. Um, and so I have continued to do that in every book. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the next book. I might do something completely different. That constraint, you know, recently, like Katie Kitamura or um, Hanya Yanagihara, Asian women who are not writing Asian characters. And I think that is, you know, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. We've, we've finally, you know, sort of moved out of the, that particular constraint. Um, and I appreciate that. But by the time you got to a tale for the time being, your main character was Ruth, you know, <laughs> so you clearly got away from that. You were by then, okay, no more six feet tall, green haired people. Yeah. I don't care if people actually think this is me. And I think Karen Joy Fowler said in an interview how she had seen men kind of put themselves in novels and you were like the first female writer she saw doing that and she absolutely loved it and and I mean you kind of put yourself in the book of form and emptiness as well there's a bit of a cameo appearance there as well which is wonderful yeah like Hitchcock you know I I <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe maybe that's that'll be my you know that'll be what I do from now on is always you know make a tiny little cameo appearance you know I I felt that I really felt that you know with with a tell uh, sorry with the, my year of meats you know I I made Jane six feet tall gave her green hair in the second novel all over creation the you know the kind of quote autobiographical character is a character named Yumi right and I basically made her. She was so dysfunctional that I thought nobody would dare ask me if, if she was autobiographical, right? <laughs> <laughs> but actually that didn't work either, right? Um, and, and I was also playing with her name, you know, you, me being, you know, you and me, right? So I was kind of punning on that. And then with Atel for the time being, yeah, I just felt like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go 
I'm just going to put myself in there. And of course, it's not me. It's a fictional representation of me, right? I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm different from the Ruth in A Tale for the Time Being. She, for example, sold her apartment in New York, which was like really stupid. Like, why would you do that, right? <laughs> so I think I'm actually smarter than she is, you know? Yeah, so there's a, there's a difference. I would actually say that we put a bit of ourselves into every one of our characters. Absolutely. Even, even the antagonists. You know, every time I chat to book clubs, they're like, which character are you? And I'm like, probably the one you like the least, but I'm a bit of all of them, definitely. Absolutely. No, I completely, I completely believe that. And if that's not the case, then you need to work harder to find yourself in the character. I mean, I think one of the problem with villains is that, you know, with the kind of villain characters is that very often, and, and this is true from my early drafts too, you know, they're kind of cardboard caricatures at first, right? And you have to work really hard to try to understand and put yourself in their skin and see the world from their perspective and really inhabit their subjectivity fully in order for that character to come alive and in order for that character to speak to the readers, right? Um, Otherwise, they just always seem kind of remote and, and artificial. So, I mean, I spend a lot of time working on characters in order to try to find some way to, you know, really relate to give them a part of me so that, you know, so that that kind of enlivens them, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and just two things on that. One is that no villain sees themselves as the villain in their own story. They Thank are you. the hero in their own story. And so right. to write a villain, you need to see them as the hero in their own story. Absolutely. No, you could not have, you cannot say that enough and you can't say that better. That That's exactly right. Um, you know, one of the things that is quite remarkable is that no one thinks they're wrong. You know, (laughs) we all think that we're right, you know? So you have to work with a character long enough so that you can understand the world from that character's point of view and understand how that character can really believe that they're doing the right thing, you know? And, and, and that immediately makes them more sympathetic, no matter who they are. Totally. And, and what you said as well about you need to search to find yourself in each of your characters. I feel like that's the vulnerability aspect because I'm always telling my students that if you are not making yourself vulnerable in your writing, if you are not scared about putting your out there, then you're not taking risks as a writer and you're playing it way too safe. Yeah, I so, completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So by putting ourselves into every one of our characters, that is where we find that vulnerability, 100%. Yeah. So, so you're publishing your fifth book now. So it's a novel mm-hmm. titled The Book of Form and Emptiness. Now, just for our listeners, just a bit of an overview. It follows Benny, a teenager whose father has recently died, as he begins hearing the voices of everything around him. Now, his mother, Annabelle, has her own fraught relationship with stuff, and her material possessions have begun to crowd and overwhelm their house. And you can imagine, for Benny, this is absolute torture because he can hear everything speaking in its own language. So a spoon calling out its spoon sorrows and a window crying when it kills a bird. And this lands him in a psychiatric ward where he meets a mysterious girl who leads him on a series of adventures that begin in the town's library. So, I mean, for our listeners, just amazing, mind-blowing stuff. Now, one of the key voices Benny hears is the book itself. Now, this is the book that we as readers are holding in our hands. And this book is talking. And I just want to read this one paragraph from In the Beginning. 
A book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses and soon a page and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere and this one starts here. And that just gave me goosebumps. To start a book with goosebumps <laughs> is the best way to start a book. So Ruth, can you tell yeah. us about the inspiration for this? Because I know it took eight years for you to write yeah. and there were a whole bunch of different inspirations. So could you take yeah. us through that? Sure, sure. You know, I, I'm a very slow writer. And, and once again, I remember when Karen Fowler, you know, I was complaining to Karen Fowler about this, Karen Joy Fowler. And she said, well, you know, you can only be the writer that you are. And I heard that and I was so kind of discouraged because I'm always thinking I can be a better writer or, you know, a different writer or a fast writer. But no, she's absolutely right. And yes, this took me about eight years to, to write. You know, it's it's always hard to, to figure out sort of where a book comes from, but, you know, what sort of what the initial inspiration um, is. But with Benny, he has a traumatic experience. He, he uh, sees his father die after, a, uh, you know, a car accident. He's run over... He's run over by a truck. And, and Benny, you know, sort of watches this, um, sees the aftermath of this, and is, is quite traumatized. And it, it takes a while, but a, a little while later, he starts to, you know, he, he hears his father's voice calling to him, right? And this was an experience that I had after my dad died as well. Um, you know, I, I would be doing something like just some random thing like folding laundry. And I'd hear behind me, my dad clearing his throat and saying my name. And when that would happen, you know, I'd whip around and look for him. Uh, and of course, suddenly remember, oh, right, he's dead. And this was, it was, you know, it was like having to kind of feel that hit of grief and loss every time that happened, right? And later I discovered researching this that um, it's actually not an uncommon experience. People, you know, report exactly this um, after the death of someone that they loved. And I just thought that was an interesting, you know, that, that was a kind of a, that was the first time that had ever happened to me, right? And I thought, well, how is this related to the kind of voices that we as writers hear all the time? And this was actually a question that I was doing a reading at a, a public library. And one of the audience members, a, um, a man, an older man, um, raised his hand and he asked me, you know, because I always talk about how characters come to me as voices, right? And he, he raised his hand and he asked, you know, when you talk about characters, you know, hearing the character's voice, are you talking about hearing with your ears? ears as the voice is outside you, or are you talking more kind of metaphorically, like you're hearing it in your mind? And, you know, I explained to him that in the case of characters, it's more that I'm hearing it in my mind, but that I have had the experience of hearing a voice that's, that's not there with my ears as though it's outside me, right? And that's really what got me thinking about this idea of voice hearing as a, um, a, as a spectrum, right? And, you know, when do we think of it as just a normal response to grief? When do we think of it as, you know, an artistic response to the world, something that writers do? And when do we pathologize it and turn it into a problem, right? Uh, you know, a medical, a medicalized problem. And so this was the kind of 
spectrum that I wanted to investigate with this book. Um, and I think that really was the, the initial inspiration for it, you know, trying mm-hmm. to understand the spectrum, you know, that exists between inspiration and madness, right? Inspiration and the process is so difficult to explain. And I know there are writers out there who love the sort of mystical part of it. And I'm, I'm a Capricorn A-type, so I try and ground all these things. Mm-hmm. And I always feel really silly also saying that it, it feels like a character sidles up next to me at a bar and kind of sits himself down next to me and is like, okay, now listen, I've got something to tell you. Uh, And that does feel super mystical, but that's part of creativity. You know, that's part of this amazing process we have. But like you say, when is it just part of creativity and when is it pathology? Right, right, exactly, exactly. And we're so, you know, there's a lot of financial motive to pathologize things in this culture, right? And so, you know, I think that that really, I think we're revisiting this, um, not perhaps quickly enough, but this is something that really concerns me because, you know, I mean, I I have a typical artistic temperament. I've struggled with depression, for example, all my life. I was like Benny, you know, Benny winds up in a psych ward. When I was a teenager, I ended up on a locked ward as well. And it was a very traumatic experience. You know, I think it was also probably unnecessary. So this was something else that I wanted to, you know, sort of revisit. And, And once again, you know, it goes back to, how do you find yourself in a character or how do you find the character in you? I think that's very often when I start to write a book, it's because I have some question that I want to answer for me personally. And the way I do that is acting it out with my characters. And that's a way of investigating this question or this problem. Yeah. And, you know, I've always thought about books as a two-way conversation. I know a lot of writers say it's, oh, you know, I'm telling the story and then it'll go out to a reader and they'll kind of review it, but it isn't a conversation. But to me, books are complete conversations because I will only see in a book what I already have the capacity within me to see it. And so I'm going to process a book very different to my buddy who's reading it at the same time. And then you added this third element of the book, having a conversation within the story of the book. And it was just (laughs) really mind blowing. I just opened that whole thing up. How do you find the voice of a book, Ruth, when you decide to write that character? Well, but you've read, how many books have you read in your life? You know, books have something, they have voices. Each book has a different voice, but they have certain character traits. You know, they have certain character traits. Books like to explain things. They tend to be a little bit pedantic, you know. They're a bit um, they, They're a little bit mansplaining. That's kind yeah. of part of the DNA, yeah. you know, the, the chromosomal makeup of a book, right? You know, you can't and help also- it. And also a book will change with time. So what a book tells you now compared to if you read it in 10 years is going to be different. And is that because you've matured or is it because the book's changed? So that's interesting as well. Exactly, exactly. No, and, and or is it because the world has changed, the context has changed, right? I mean, I know that books that I've read in when I was a teenager, the, the world has changed so much that you cannot read those books in the same way as, as an older person, right? And, and of course, I've changed, but in a way, the context has changed the book as well, right? And we see that all the time with the classics, people just not finding them relevant in the same kind of ways. So anyway, yeah, it, it's a, it's fascinating. And I completely agree with you. I would even go further and say that it's sort of like 
you know, a quantum multiverse that I write this book and it's got a form. It, it's this object and I write it and I put it out into the world and you read it, you pick it up and our common in common parlance, we're reading, we're, you know, experiencing the same book. But in fact, that's not the case at all. That that we're actually, you and I are co-creating a completely different book than the book that I wrote, right? And, and so in that sense, there are, you know, as many different books as there are different readers, right? And this is where the multiverse idea comes in, right? So there's not just one copy of A Tale of Form, uh, you know, a, a Tale for the Time Being, or, you know, the Book of Form and Emptiness. There are hopefully hundreds hundreds of thousands of copies of, you know, of that book. Right. But, but then also what's a bit frightening for a writer then is that the conversations you're having, you're assuming you're on the same page, pardon the pun, yeah, uh, right. in terms of what you're saying and what the person's experiencing. But what I've learned myself is that a reader will read something and take away something completely. I mean, you know, my first book was about white people coming to terms with their own racism because I was raised in apartheid South Africa. And this book was an examination of that. And it was an examination of how black people experience racism. Mm-hmm. And I had someone reach out to me and said, it was so great that you got away with using the k-word and all the bad words in this book for black people without being called racist I'd like to do that in my book so how, how did you get away with that and I was completely horrified I was like how did you read my book and think that was what I was trying to do so you know these conversations can sometimes get very much lost in translation which is what happens in real life anyway right exactly that's exactly right these conversations I mean look at the world around us, look at the conflicts, look at the wars, you know, we're not that good at understanding each other, you know, and so I think that as a writer, you do your best, you know, you do your best to kind of frame a scene or frame a character in a way that, or frame a worldview in a way that, you know, the reader will kind of pick up on and, you know, be more or less, as you say, on the same page. Um, But you can't guarantee that. You just simply can't because every reader brings something completely different to the page. Yeah, totally. One last question, Ruth, because I know you're going to have to go. I know that your longtime editor bought bought this book based, I think, on six pages of synopsis. And then she left Viking before you finished it. How was the experience of then going from working with your longtime editor to, to somebody new? How did you make that transition? Well, I, you know, my, my new editor is also somebody I knew. So, so the transition was, was really easy. Um, also by the time, uh, you know, my, my first editor, Carol DeSanti, um, by the time she left, I was already deep into the book. Um, and she had seen, you know, she had seen more than six pages at that point. She'd read hundreds of pages at that point and she'd been helping me. And, you know, we'd been having these kinds of editorial discussions, um, all the way along, you know, she continued because I mean, she's a friend, right. And so we continued to have this conversation. And then, you know, with my new editor, he kind of chimed in as well. And so, you know, it was, it was as all, as all books I think should be, I like to have as many readers as I can. I like to have, you know, a lot of editorial input because each, again, you know, it's just what you were saying, you know, each reader is going to have a different set of reactions to it. And so I I think that the more you, you know, the more of that kind of input you can get, you know, early on, the better. That feeds into what we say on the podcast all the time. Get your beta readers, get your writing group, get more eyes on the page because it really, really is invaluable. So Ruth, before you go, Mm -hmm. you're a creative writing professor. Could you give our listeners a word of advice or two um, to take away it? Because many of them are now finishing up their first novels will be going out on submission. What nugget of wisdom do you have for them on their journey? 
I mean, there's so many things that kind of pop to mind, but but one thing that I have found uh, to be true is that writers are impatient, right? We like, maybe we like writing, you know, but what we really like is having written. And so, you know, and we're very imp- impatient to get to that place, right? And and so the the one piece of advice I have is really take your time. You know, the the best part of writing is the writing itself, even if it doesn't feel that way. Publication is is great. You think you want that, but it's actually a lot of hard work. It's it's more of a business, right? But the creative stuff, the creative part of it, is what as writers we live for. And so there's no point in rushing that. And the way I kind of think of it now is that. You know, on one hand, we're impatient. um, And on the other hand, there's this kind of ideal of patience, right? But as as writers, it's impossible to really be patient because we're always pushing to finish, right? So what we really have to do is understand that there is going to be a tension between these poles, patience and impatience, right? And we have to learn to sit in that tension because that tension is exactly what is generative, right? The, the the generative act, the creative act really comes from that tension, right? The tension between patience and impatience, the tension between knowing and not knowing, right? We always want to know everything, yeah. right? But we need, you need to, I think as writers, we need to really learn to relax in that tension of not knowing, of, you know, suspended between patience and impatience, and just learn to hang out there, right, and tolerate that, so. Amazing, amazing advice. Ruth, (laughs) thanks so much for being on the show. It was amazing chatting to you. To our listeners, you've got to read the book of Form and Emptiness, and Ruth, we hope to have you back again one day. Wonderful. I'd love that. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. 
That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy, 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.